social engagement. And for many of you, life begins, it stops in different ways. Now, it gets busier in some ways, but the normal routines go away. And you're given maybe some more discretionary time, some more opportunities to to go to the coffee shop and sit with a friend and to catch up. You have opportunity to see that aunt or that uncle, that brother or sister that you haven't seen for a long time. You have opportunities to sit in front of the football game for three hours digesting food, and you better do something else than simply, you know, give your terrible color commentary on the game. So we have some opportunity this month, and so if you're going to be a preacher and a proclaimer in these opportunities, what are you to say? And the approach I want to take this morning in in helping us understand what it looks like to present the gospel is not to simply go through and kind of provide the kind of the the very rudimentary, hey, do this, do this, do this. But I actually want to engage what I see as the, the main flaws that we have in our presentations of the gospel. And how Peter's presentation, and really the, the, the general presentations in all of Acts of the gospel, help kind of shine the light on those flaws and those problems, and actually help give us solutions and show us what we ought to be doing in our presentations of the gospel. So I'm going to articulate this in, in light of four flaws. Four flaws this morning in our gospel presentations. The first flaw is this that we often present the gospel devoid of Jesus. By the way, if you, this is no gospel at all, to be clear. But the flaw here, a presentation that we often confuse um, gospel presentation and gospel proclamation with actually articulating to our family and our friends the ethics of the Bible and not first and foremost the gospel of the Scriptures. We give the social implications of the gospel, but not first and foremost, the gospel itself. Now, don't hear me wrong. There is a lot of law in the Bible. There's a lot of things in which you, ways and instructions that how you're supposed to live your life, but that is actually not the, what the core of the message of the scriptures is about. And there are a lot of social implications for the gospel, for how you live your life, for how you engage with poverty, These are great implications, but that is not where we start, and that is in presenting the problems and the the calling to people to live a certain way is not actually presenting the gospel itself. You see, very often when we do it this way, or we think we've convinced ourselves that if we fuss at somebody for the way in which they're living that we presented the gospel, we've fooled ourselves, and we actually have provided a false gospel. We've provided a law without the good news. That's no gospel at all. We've put the cart before the horse. You've got to put the belief before the ethics. See, you, you haven't preached the gospel when you've simply complained about the sexual behavior of millennials, right? That really doesn't do them any good. You have to convince them that there's a reason, that there's a good news to actually change the way they live. And for you millennials, you haven't actually preached the gospel to your parents and your grandparents by simply telling them that they should believe in various forms of social injustice. That actually, that's ethics, and that's wonderful, and those are implications. But listen, we've got to actually start with what the true good news, and that's where we have to go. The gospel has these implications, but we've got to give the good news first. And here's, what, here's how we see this in Peter's presentation. Peter, instead of being ethically focused, sure, his presentation has means, things in which we are to respond with, various ethics by which we are to live in light of the gospel— But his gospel presentation is first and foremost, before anything else, it is Jesus-focused. And so if you're going to present the gospel and to escape this flaw, you darn better say Jesus at some point and proclaim him at the core of your gospel. 
The sermons that we see throughout Acts, and particularly we see it here in Peter's sermon, are Jesus-focused. They are focused on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. In fact, Peter goes out of his way to get to Jesus. Where does he start? He starts his sermon with a question, are you drunk? And he gets to the gospel. Now that's a good turn right there. Do you understand what he does? He goes, he goes to the question, are you drunk? And what is going on with this bizarre behavior on Pentecost? And he answers that question first before, and then he gets to the gospel. He's, I'm going to get there. That's going to be the core of what I want to share with you. What I want to tell you about is what this Jesus has done and who he is. You see, it's, it's, it is a mistake. We ought to be a church that loves the Holy Spirit. We should be a church that understands the Holy Spirit. We should be a church that pleads for the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where Peter starts, because that was the best answer to the question. But where he goes, ultimately, is a focus to Jesus. And that is, that is absolutely consistent with the Scriptures. And that totally makes sense, because Jesus has said that the Spirit will come, and the main role of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives is to point us back to Jesus. And so what Peter says, he says, listen, what you see here with these people speaking in tongues and this bizarre behavior, that is the power of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the work of the Holy Spirit is automatically going to say, look how great Jesus is and look how wonderful the things that he has done for you. So we ought to be a people who are going out of our way to get to Jesus, to share the message. You see simply what Peter goes through here. We went through this a couple weeks ago. The essence of the Christian message are the activities of Jesus, the salvific work of Jesus. It talks about his life the miracles and wonders and signs that he did. It talks about his death on the cross, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It talks about the resurrection. It talks about the ascension up into heaven. And then it talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit. These are the main components of the gospel, the essence of what the Christian message is. You have to get to that. You haven't proclaimed the gospel until you've given them what Jesus has done for them. You see, the gospel is not news that you create. You don't create the news. You receive the news. And so you haven't presented the gospel if you've, come into, if you've come to your family and your friends and you said, hey, you've got to live this way, this way, and this way. You've presented the gospel when you've come and shared with them the good news of what Jesus has done for them. We can also get sidetracked in regards to what, Je- you know, only simply communicating in regards to Jesus by talking about what he taught. You see, Je- the focus of Peter's sermon is not what Jesus taught. Jesus did a lot of teaching. And yet, Peter doesn't get up there and say, look, look, listen, what we need to do is just, we need to study all of Jesus' teachings, and that's the gospel. The core of what Peter wants us to focus on is the cross and the resurrection, what Jesus did and who Jesus is. He is Savior and he is Lord. So that's flaw one. A gospel presentation without Jesus is no gospel presentation at all. Flaw number two is not quite as serious, but it's still pretty important Gospel presentation, flaw number two, is a gospel presentation that is disconnected from the audience. It is disconnected from the person or people to whom you're trying to share the gospel. I'm going to use a a big word here, and it's a scary word, particularly for conservative Christians. But our flaw here is that we fail to contextualize the gospel to our audience. In other words, you have a context to which you are speaking into. It's called people's lives. It's called people's culture. And you are to shape the way in which you communicate the gospel into that culture and into that context. Now, this makes conservative Christians really, really uneasy 
and for good reason. Because historically, when people have called you to contextualize the gospel, what they have, me- what they have meant is get rid of all the things that are difficult for people to believe in and leave the easy stuff. That's what it means. That's not contextualization. That's simply an abandonment of the gospel. That's not what we're, at, we're calling for. We're calling for a contextualization of it. Tim Keller, who has probably given, uh, helped me understand this more than any, any other person out there, he has written a book called Center Church, where he's training church planters and future pastors how to understand how to communicate the gospel to a particular context. And so he's got this quote onto contextualization as he describes it this way. He says, Contextualization is not, as is often regarded, giving people what they want to hear, Rather, contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not want to hear at all, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking, and language in forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them. You see what he's saying there? We've got to communicate to people in such a way that they can understand. Did you know that simply, we have all these translations of the Bible, right? Do you know there's other translations besides English? I don't know if you know, our Ameri- you know, Anglo-centrism, if we understand that. But there's like, I lived in Bosnia, and there was like three or, even three or four editions of how to translate the Bible into the Bosnian or Serbo-Croatian. There's all these translations. You know what you're doing when you translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic into another language? You're contextualizing. And if you know languages, there is not a two equals two kind of format when it comes to languages. There's some massaging you got to do. You're contextualizing there. Sound contextualization, Keller goes on to say, I don't have it on the, the quote on the screen, but he says this, means translating and adapting your communication and ministry to a particular culture without compromising the essence of the gospel. In other words, you're not changing the gospel message. You're changing how you communicate the gospel message so that the people who are listening to you can understand it, so they can be heard. Contextualizing the gospel is marked by clarity and attractiveness. It makes people want to believe it. It challenges people in their sinfulness, but also gives them the good news in a way that they can understand. Now, let me, let me see if I can illustrate to you the importance of this in a way in which you probably are quite familiar. And that is the illustration of a bad sermon, a boring sermon. Have you ever sat through a really boring sermon? You're thinking, uh... It can be a boring sermon. A boring sermon can be really biblically sound, and you can have tears coming down your eyes because you want to get out of there so bad. <laughs> in other words, they can be communicating the truth of the Bible. In all, it's, it's true what they're saying. They're not saying something that's false, but it's so boring that you don't want to listen to it. Now, sometimes this is the mechanics. It may be somebody who has a monotone sort of delivery, may it's somebody who talks too fast. Maybe it's uh, just a boring sermon because it's, but most often it's boring simply because it's irrelevant to your life. In other words, the sermon has not been contextualized. You haven't, the, the, the preacher hasn't actually told you why the doctrine matters. He's not asking and trying to answer, he's not answering the questions of your life that the Bible is seeking to answer. He says, you, you listener, you might be sitting there saying, now that's nice, you've shown me some nice truth, but I don't care. And if you don't understand why you should believe something that the Bible says, then the preacher hasn't done his job. A boring sermon is boring because it fails to bring the truth into a listener's daily life. It doesn't connect the biblical truth to your hopes and to your fears, to the questions and concerns that you have. 
to the narratives of your life, to the occasions in which you're living in, does not help the listener even want to believe in Christianity. You see, we should proclaim the gospel in such a way and so profoundly and so well connected to people's questions that they may leave saying, I don't believe what you're saying to me, but I want to, because that sounds like really good news. That sounds like really good news. See, seminary students are known for being terrible, terrible uh, preachers. You know why? Because they're disconnected from people. So what we do, the way we do seminary in the West, and it's a really flawed model, is we pull people out of their ministries, and we, we take them into a place for three or four years to get, so you get a master's divinity, which is what our denomination requires. It takes about three or four years to get the degree. And so you, they pull you out of ministry to go do this. You do full-time, full-time seminary where your, your nose is stuck in a book, where you're studying Greek and Hebrew and theological concepts and all this kind of highfalutin stuff. And guess what? Nobody else cares. And so what seminary guys do is they show up to churches and what they care about, because what they've immersed themselves in is Greek and Hebrew and the nuances of uh, superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism and every other kind of lapsarianism, and they're talking about this, and you're going, I, have n- I don't care. I just don't care. <laughs> and what it ends up being is it ends up being skeletal sermons. And I don't know if you're, you're like me. Whenever you see a skeleton, they're creepy, aren't they? No one likes creepy sermons, <laughs> but that's what they are. They're creepy sermons in which you hear a bunch of truth, but you actually are disconnected to the things that you care about. John Stott has a great book on preaching. It's called uh, Between Two Worlds. And he likens Christian communication to a bridge. And he describes two two flaws in preaching this way. He says, some sermons are like a bridge to nowhere. They are grounded in solid study of the biblical text, but they never come down to earth on the other side. That is, they fail to connect the biblical truth to people's hearts and the issues of their lives. That's what I'm talking about here. There's another flaw. The other flaw is sometimes are like bridges from nowhere. They reflect on contemporary issues, but the insights they bring to bear on modern problems and felt needs don't actually rise out of the biblical text. In other words, that's actually, the, that's actually one is conservative preaching. Bible Belt, robust truth that may never actually connect to you, and the other is liberal preaching that doesn't actually give you the gospel and the truth of the Bible. What John Stott says, the proper contextualization is the act of bringing sound biblical doctrine all the way over the bridge by re-expressing it in terms coherent to a particular culture. Now, here's how he applies this, and here I'm getting to you. In other words, the way you got to do this is you got to go to the other side of the bridge, and you have to listen. And you have to start to understand the questions that your homosexual aunt is asking. And you have, to, you have to understand the questions and the hurts of your grandparents. And you have to understand and acknowledge the particular concerns of millennials. You see, you go nowhere with people when the great debate in your gospel presentation is, these stupid kids and their lack of reality, why don't they just go get a job? You've got to hear their concerns. And then you have opportunity to share the gospel in such a way that is contextualized to their needs. You know, when Jesus does all these healings and he teaches people and he forgives people, almost all the time, now I'm, this is descriptive, not prescriptive, but almost all the time, people and where Jesus first addresses people is at their felt needs. Where they're hurting the questions they are asking in that moment. Now, he may say they're asking a deeper question that they may not even know they're asking. 
They have a deeper need that they don't even realize that they have, but he starts with where they're at. Now, if you come in, you know, if you're sitting there, you know, watching football, and you suddenly turn to look over and go, hey, how about Jesus? You're not going to get much of a, of, a, of, a, of a voice to speak into their lives. You've got to engage in conversation. You've got to actually show that you can In other words, you've got to be a good neighbor. You've got to love people enough to get inside their stories, to understand who they are, to understand where their hurts are, to understand where the brokenness is. And then, then you have a great opportunity to share the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that's the only time you show the gospel. I, I've done cold call events. I've walked up to people on beaches. I've done the door-to-door thing. I've done that, and that is appropriate. That is okay, right? We want the gospel to go forward. But the vast majority of the time, the way, way we see the, the gospel proclaimed is descriptively is when people are asking questions. Look, look at the way Peter does it here. There's a book I read this week. On, it's essentially all the book is, is it's looking at various patterns and themes that runs throughout Acts. It's not a normal commentary. It's called a biblical theological commentary. Like your normal commentary walks verse by works and explains the Greek and the Hebrew. Then there's biblical theological books. And what it's doing is saying, what are the main themes of the book? And I'm going to look at the whole book on this particular topic. And one section of the book is on preaching. And it's talk, it talks about this in one section of its, its, its um, section on preaching and it says that we all, we see, on all the sermons and acts, what we see is that they are audience conscious. Audience conscious. And there's three ways in which it's audience conscious. I'm going to connect these to you. The first way is this. The gospel is connected to the occasion in the context of the audience. In other words, that's where they start. They, they, you know, they get a feel of the room. They see what's going on. In other words, Peter comes in and acknowledges the fact that there's people around him that look like they're acting drunk. He starts there and answers what is going on there. Then he goes to the gospel. Later on, we see where one of the apostles has healed somebody, and the people are going, wow, that's pretty crazy, that's pretty cool, and they start there in the gospel proclamation. So you start with the occasion, with the context. Listen, there's always cultural occasions and context, right? There's always things in the news. There's always things going on. In that context, may not be cultural, large. It could be something that's going on in their life. It could be a funeral. It could be a wedding. It could be a family get-together. There's various contexts and occasions that you're always speaking into and be sensitive to that as you go in to engage with people. The second way is this, we see, as their audience conscious. The gospel is connected to the questions, concerns, and objections of the audience. This is kind of what I was just talking about. What are the questions these people are asking? What are the concerns they have in their life? What are the objections they may have about the gospel? In fact, what you might need to begin doing is very practically, and I've actually given this to you for your community groups to do as an exercise. Think maybe one particular family member. You've had conversations with them. What are the things that they most care about? And, and, and what are the concerns and the questions of their life? And you know what? Everybody has answers to their questions. They have ways in which they're answering their questions culturally and personally. But the thing is, the gospel is always a better answer. And so what you have to come to understand is not only their questions, but what are their answers, and then be able to help them understand and see how the gospel actually provides them a better answer in a better way to achieve the things that they most want to see happen. You have to, have to actually listen to their objections. Hey, if I could give the gospel, what are the objections that they're most likely going to have to this? Is it going to be a scientific objection? Is it going to be a personal experience objection? 
What are the objections people have to the gospel? It's interesting, Peter does this in the book of, in, in Acts 2, doesn't he? Two times. Peter's primarily responding to two questions. Are they drunk? Then he preaches, and then they go, now what do we do? And he says, now repent and believe. He listens to the questions, and he answers the questions. Listens to the objections and the questions. And the third, the third thing is this, that gospel communication connects to the tone, the valued sources, and the language of the audience. That's why you see this. In, in Acts 2, there's all different ways. It says we don't have the whole context of, preach, of Peter's sermon. It says there at the, at the end, it says it was all sorts of arguments and exhortations. He, he answers them, and he speaks to them, and he preaches the gospel. There's going to be various ways in which you need to communicate the gospel. This goes back to the questions and the objections. Some of you have family and friends that are very scientifically minded, and therefore you need to start to get, understand the scientific evidence that we are actually saying there are reasonable reasons to believe in the gospel. That this is not some fairy tale story. That we are saying that there is witnesses and there's evidence to these things. Go get a good apologetic book and begin to read and start to understand. We also see that it's logical. He answers with logic. But we also see that he goes to sources that people care about. What is the audience of Peter in Acts 2? They're all Jews, pretty much. Either that or people who have, who have converted to Judaism. They know the Old Testament. And so what does Peter use to, as a defense for his arguments? The Old Testament. Now listen, you should always use God's word. Paul uses God's word later on. But we also see that Paul later on, when he's pre- preaching to the Athenians, is he brings up various philosophers and various sayings of the day. He's utilizing the language and the sources of the day in order to communicate in the language of other people. Ways in which they can understand. So here's the thing. Here's the summarize, summary on this. You've got to be seeking to connect the gospel to the hearers of the gospel. And if you do that, you may, you may just cut them to the hearts. Now, they may not believe, but they may be moved by the power of the gospel. That suddenly they don't see the gospel as seeing it as this culturally archaic thing with all this old, bizarre language as being something of a, like a dead guy from 2,000 years ago, but actually the gospel could have relevance for their lives today. And suddenly you're off to the races. Suddenly you're actually having real conversations. Now, listen to me, you have to care about people to do that. You have to actually love them. You have to not just simply be after just kind of crossing up the box and being like, okay, good, I did my kind of familial duty. I mentioned Jesus. I volunteered to pray at Christmas dinner. I'm good. We actually have to want to care for people, to love for them in such a way that we care for their souls and care about their, the things that they're concerned about. Flaw number three. Flaw three is a gospel presentation that is propositionally unclear. Propositionally unclear. You know what a proposition is? Proposition is saying, proposing this, believe this. This is the truth to believe. A number of years ago, actually while I was in seminary, there was this, this movement called the Emergent Church, in which it was essentially starting to look at how are we to preach to people who are post-churched, um, who don't, haven't grown up with the Bible. And they're essentially saying this, is that you've got to stop doing propositional sermons that your sermon's got to simply be narratives. Just tell stories. Now, I like story, and I think actually if you look at the Gospels, that's exactly what Jesus does. But his stories, by the way, lead to a proposition. They lead to actual clear truths and facts and things to believe. A lot of churches have believed the sense that, you know, if we would just, that Christianity has lost its weight, 
And if Christianity is to have any kind of power and any kind of place in a post-Christian society as we're moving towards that more and more, that we have to, we have to get rid of the things that are uncomfortable about the Christian message. We've got to get rid of these kind of these hard propositions about this guy who does miracles and this guy who like raises people from the dead and that stuff. And even sin, if we could just stop talking about sin, that would make, we would get a much better hearing if we would just stop and we, people would like us a lot more and then we could tell them the good news. Now mind you, we've gotten rid of the good news when we've done those things. In other words, what people want us to be is just be kind of really vague. Just show the similarities that Christianity has with all the other religions. And it's interesting how legalists and conservative people who want to actually just focus on the law and live like this, oddly enough, are very much like the liberals who want to get rid of the gospel and just kind of give us, really just want to give us social ways in which we're to live. We end up at the same place. No gospel and all law. No gospel and all law. Get rid of the propositions be kind of vague, be kind of wishy-washy, reinterpret Christianity so that it fits today. We reduce the, the gospel message to, if we just would talk about love and just kind of breathily say it every week in different ways, then, then people would like Christians and we'd be okay. That's not what Peter does, is it? Peter gives pretty much the most unseeker-friendly sermon ever. So my previous point, I'm saying you've got to be seeker-friendly. And now this point, I'm saying... Uh, you can't be too seeker-friendly. you still got to like, leave the teeth of the gospel there. He's, look at Peter. He's clear. He's aggressive. He's firm. And his message, and what we see throughout Acts, and in the proclamation, the presentation of the gospels, we see a number of things. First is this. We see a clear claims to believe. Peter gets up there and says, there was an actual Jesus who actually lived the perfect life, who actually died on the cross, who actually rose from the dead, who actually ascended to heaven. Clear claims to believe. We have witnesses to these facts. You have to believe in order to be a Christian. He also gives warnings to heed. Now, this part we really don't like, right? Here it is, New Testament Christianity, right? We're supposed to be rid of the God of wrath and justice. And yet, where does Peter start? Flee from the wrath which is to come, he says at the end. That's how he ends his sermon. And he says this, you killed Jesus. In other words, what he's, not only have, we have claims to believe, but we also must give people warnings to heed. That there are warnings in the gospel. And if you love people enough, and if you actually believe these warnings, and Christianity is not something in which you just kind of show up to church to get your little warm and fuzzies to send you back out for the week, but you actually believe these things, and you want to actually see your friends believe these things, you actually should give them the warnings as well. Because there is a Jesus who came, and he offered grace and love and mercy, and he died for people's sins on the cross, and he resurrected, and we get to offer people life eternal. But if they don't receive that, there is judgment to pay. And that is a warning we can't leave out. And so if you care about people, you'll leave the warning in there. You'll share with them that there are warnings to heed. There is, there is a timetable to believe. The third thing, we see claims to believe, we see warnings to heed, and we also see gracious promises to receive. Yes, you should give them the warnings. You should give them claims to believe. But part of those things that they should be believing, and the escape from those warnings is the good news of the gospel. That there is forgiveness of sins. They say, Peter, what do we do? We've crucified the Lord and the Messiah. What do we do? And he says, repent and believe, and you'll be forgiven of your sins, and you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is not just for you, but it's for your children, and for all peoples of the earth, for all of eternity. Now that's good news. 
You've got to give people the promises. And may those promises connect to where they are, with the longings they have for this world. You know, so many people are longing for a utopia. They're long, and and, and it's, it's, it's vapid, their understanding of that. It's interesting, we, we, have, we have something real to give them. We have a story that's so compelling that they would go, that sounds so much like what the world I want, and we would say, yes, and here's what it costs. Here's what it costs to bring that beautiful kingdom about, to bring that, that desired, promised future about. The last thing is Peter gives them is specific responses to give. So claims to believe, warnings to heed, gracious promises to receive, and spe- specific responses to give. They say, what do we do? What does he say? Repent, be baptized, believe. This is the clear call throughout Acts and throughout the New Testament. And this is the ethical dimension. You got to give the gospel first. But when people ask the question, what do I do? You say, you got to repent and you got to believe. This is a proposition. So in that way, they have to respond. So you clarify with aggressiveness you make it clear that there is a demand. The gospel demands a response. It's not a truth that we can go, eh, it's, I can take or leave that. Now, the gospel demands to be responded as either something I'm going to base my life around or something I'm going to reject entirely. Something in between is not Christianity at all. It's some wishy-washy religious form that takes on the traditions of every other religion in the world. And that does nobody any good. To give you more ways in which they respond, the character, the shape, the nature of the Christian message is aggressive, brothers and sisters. It does not shy away from giving the truth, what we believe to be the truth. It's interesting, you may say, well, listen, now, is that actually going to be heard in this day and age? This is a pluralistic society. Almost by nature, right? The Constitution is saying, we're going to get a bunch of people together, and we all have these different beliefs, and we're all going to put ourselves under this. We are a pluralistic, pluralistic society. You live, how, how are we supposed to communicate this? Well, understand this, that, that in the couple hundred years after Christianity, the New Testament Christianity was birthed, it took over the world. Under slaughter and persecution and suffering, and the Roman culture was as much, if not more, pluralistic than ours. In fact, the whole basis of the Roman culture was, you know what we're going to do? Everybody, every land and every culture we conquer, we're going to incorporate that culture into our own. And we're going to kind of create this syncretistic kind of religion. That's going to be what we're going to do. And so you think, you think we have it tough, they had it tougher. And yet in that day and age, what happens? Over the next three to 400 years, the gospel spreads and there is no stopping it. Because it is aggressive because it is bold, because it proclaims the truth. Here's the shape of Christianity. Christianity is a witness. And it's not a witness. It's, so many people, we think it's a philosophy. It's a nice, thing to, a nice way of thinking. It's not a philosophy. It's a witness. You see, a witness is something that you receive, not something you go after to get. A philosophy you go years and years and years to develop. A witness, when get, you receive it like news, it comes to you. It's like this. Tim Keller describes it this way. I think it's well said. He says, a witness is someone who, is, who says, the dam has burst. Run for your lives. Not, let's go, has the dam burst? A witness is saying, this is the fact. Run, and you'll be saved. That's the nature of the Christian message. Would you have the boldness to do it? And that leads us to the fourth flaw. The two in the middle are taking care of kind of two kind of failings, but not critical flaws. 
The first one and the fourth one are critical. You leave Jesus out, you have no gospel at all. And the fourth one is a flaw. Fourth flaw is a gospel presentation that is never presented. A gospel presentation that is never presented. I, I had a conversation with my dad a couple years ago, which, you know, like a young guy who, who wanted to say, why don't we just do, ev- we, we need to do, we need to do more relational evangelism. And I'm fussing about another family member who was handing out tracts at the airport when she traveled. And listen, uh, you know, I would say most tracts are, are, are flawed too. They're giving the facts of the gospel, but usually not in a way that's connected to people's lives. But it's still giving the gospel. And my dad looked at me and he said, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? My response was, touche. <laughs> touche. You can do worse. Maybe you undercontextualize. Maybe you overcontextualize. But guess what? The gospel doesn't get presented unless you actually present it. Paul says this in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. How, will they, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him and who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone to preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know you've got to go. Don't we, we, so there's two, ser- two sermons we church people most hate. Actually, three. We hate the Good Samaritan sermon. We, we hate the prayer sermon. And we hate the you've got to go do evangelism sermon. Because we go, I know, I know, preacher. I stink. I'm, I know, I'm terrible. Tell me how terrible I am. Why are we so bad at this? We, we know that, that heaven and, and hell is on the line. We know the truth. We know that we are the ones who've been sent. We know Romans 10. We know that verse. We've heard it. So why don't we do it? Why don't we present the, the gospel? Well, I, there's many reasons, but I would just simply say because we're afraid. We're scaredy cats. We're chickens. We're timid. We lack courage. The manner of preaching, of apostolic preaching, what we see in Acts, is it's bold. So we've looked this morning at the core. It's, you know, you've got to give Jesus. You've got to connect it to the audience. You've got to give clear propositional truths. But, it's, but the manner of it is bold. Peter's standing up in front of a crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him, 50 days earlier. And here he is getting up and saying, you crucified him. Now repent and believe. Now that's boldness. And listen, many of the, the responses of the gospel, you know what? People understanding the gospel does not mean they're going to receive the gospel. Your job is to help them understand it. They may have one or two responses. They may say, that's really great, I'm going to change my life. The other response may be, that's great, I'm going to change your life by killing you. They may not like it. It takes boldness to proclaim the gospel. The noun parousia, which is the word where we get boldness, is used five times in Acts. And almost seven out of the, or seven, and just in here in the first couple of chapters, five times, it's seven of the nine uses in the entire New Testament are found here in Acts. The proclamation of the gospel is to be bold. How do, you, how do you get boldness? How do we overcome this fear? Listen, this is a whole sermon of itself, right? Three quick things, and we'll be, we'll be done. One, you've got to be filled with the Spirit. What leads to the bold proclamation of the gospel? The first couple of verses of Acts 2. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they go out. 
In fact, later on, we see in, in chapter 8, where we see more sermons, it says, thus Peter, right, when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, it says this, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and pro- proclaims the gospel. We see this over and over and over again. The filling of the Holy Spirit precedes great and bold gospel proclamation. So here's your application. Would you plead for the filling of the Holy Spirit? God, I am timid, and I am scared, and I am under-equipped, and so please, Lord, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Second, overcoming our lack of boldness is you've got to become personally convicted of the gospel. You see, many of you are not proclaiming the gospel because you don't actually believe the gospel. Or the penny hasn't dropped in such a way that it hasn't moved your heart and your soul. The number one way to undercut evangelism is to stop believing in the gospel or never to have believed in it at all. Those whose lives have been changed, who have understood, who have come to realize the power of the gospel for their lives, understand that power can be given to other people, and they go out. So yeah, you've got to be a people who love the gospel, who apply the gospel to yourselves every day. So plead for the Holy Spirit. Preach to yourself the gospel. Or have you been convicted? And the third is this, and this is kind of stemming or a subset of no, the second one. You've got to believe in resurrection power. These, these are, so the apostles, which is the main, you know, main ministers we see in the book of Acts, the apostles are these spineless, cowardly, ill-equipped, uneducated dudes who run away from Jesus the night of his, cruci- of his betrayal and crucifixion. And yet, by Acts 2, some 50 days later, these guys are willing to spend the rest of their lives risking death in order to proclaim this gospel. What happened? They saw the risen Lord. And they said they understood the implications of the resurrection, which if if death cannot touch me, nothing else can. You want to get over your fear? You got to come to understand the resurrection. You got to come be convicted of the gospel. And you got to plead for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, as is written, Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have, um, you didn't just give us the gospel, but then you also gave us illustrations of how we are to communicate it. God, I pray that we would not waste that, those examples. But God, the very things that I've just said we need, Lord, I'm going to pray for them right now. God, would King's Chapel be a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit? Lord, we love our gospel truth. We love our doctrine. But would you bring that doctrine and that sweet truth to bear upon our lives and our hearts through your work of your Holy Spirit? Convict us, Lord, of our sin. Show us and reveal to us the sweet truth of the gospel is real for us. And God, may we come to understand not simply mentally and intellectually the power of the resurrection, but begin to actually live out of it. That as as we see in Timothy, that we have not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power by which we can go out and proclaim the gospel. And so, Spirit of the living God, we ask for the glory of your name may your spirit fall in this place. And upon these people so that we would be a people who are bold with the gospel, 
loving in heart to our neighbors, to our friends, and to our family. And that we would go out and be in the means of being the beautiful ones who bring the good news. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.